Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Make no mistake about it. We are feeling the impact of a changing climate. Think back to this summer, the drought, the sweltering record temperatures here in the Midwest, that hazardous smoke we had to breathe uh, coming from the massive wildfires out west in Canada, Uh, the torrential rainfalls elsewhere in the U.S. and around the world. What can we expect in the future for our climate? What actions can we take now to moderate the catastrophic scenarios we face if we do nothing? Today, my guests are scientists who put together the recently released assessment of Iowa's climate, lead authors of the Iowa Climate Statement. More than 200 scientists from Iowa colleges and universities have signed the 2023 Iowa Climate Statement. And a key message for this hour, how harnessing solar energy uh, not only mitigates climate change, but also boosts our state's economy. Uh, We'll also explore the rise of something called agrivoltaics, using land for energy production and agriculture at the same time. How's that possible? We'll find out. Uh, Joining us for the entire hour, and first of all, David Courard-Howry, is Professor of Environmental Science and Sustainability at Drake University. David, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ben. Good to be here. Gene Tonkley is with us as well, Distinguished Emeritus Professor of Agronomy at Iowa State University. Gene, good to have you back. Thanks for inviting me, Ben. And we want to have our listeners uh, join us with your questions, your comments about solar power, uh, especially if you've recently installed a solar power system in your home, or perhaps you're thinking about it. You may have some questions. one 780 9100 1-866-780-9100, or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Uh, David, as the leader here, the leader of this group this year, and for those who don't know, uh, tell us more uh, uh, in general about the Iowa Climate Statement. How and why did it get started? Absolutely. And I, I would say organizer rather than leader. Um, but Okay. Uh, yeah, Very good. So, <laughs> so back in 2011, um, a group of us got together and felt felt like it would make sense to communicate to Iowans um, sort of what's going on in Iowa in particular as far as climate change is concerned and how what we do in Iowa affects things. Uh, I think that often the climate discussion feels very distant to a lot of people, um, even though, as you mentioned at the in, in, in the intro, you know, we, we're definitely feeling the effects. So um, we wanted to help with that. And so we started releasing every year uh, a climate statement. Um, and essentially what happens there is we have a group of, of experts in Iowa, um, uh, you know, a number of the members of the uh, IPCC and so on are on those committees. Um, And we look at uh, uh, sort of like what's going on, um, what can can be done to to, uh, address it and 
we each year kind of focus on a slightly different topic. So anyway, so then once we've once we've come up with um, an idea, we work with uh, both our core group and then uh, all the signatories to uh, work out a statement that that everybody feels is um, well supported and uh, you know strongly justifiable. So and then we um, uh, circulate it, and uh, uh, as you mentioned, we had you know over. 200 uh, science faculty uh, in in climate and climate impacted fields from uh, and I should mention from you know 36 colleges which is almost all the colleges and universities um, here in mm-hmm. Iowa um, join on so, so what we're hearing David in other words is uh, a vast consensus uh, among Iowa scientists having anything to do uh, with, with the climate um, here that are signed on to what we're, we're going to talk about today. Correct. Mm-hmm. Um, in just a moment, I, I want to have Gene talk a, a little bit more in depth about how climate change is impacting Iowa and the Midwest specifically. But David, uh, continue there with this year's climate assessment. Um, what is the thrust of this year's messages? Yeah, so this year's uh, climate statement, um, you, each of the statements, we essentially begin with um, identifying some of the issues that we've noticed in the past year. Um, so we, we, we start with that. But the, the focus here is on solar energy um, and the idea that, that in Iowa, we're really kind of underutilizing solar. Uh, as, as you know, we have a really large uh, uh, base of wind power, um, but wind and solar can be complementary uh, in in a lot of ways, and so and, and we we use a lot less solar than, uh, for example, you know Minnesota that's that's uh, north of us, right? So it gets gets less uh, solar, you know, incoming solar energy. So anyway, mm-hmm. um, we we wanted to identify that that. There were a lot of opportunities uh, with, with solar. That solar energy is today is very different from just the solar market. Um, you know, ten years ago, uh, the, the the market has entirely changed, and so we want people to you know notice that and think about you know the benefits that that, that can come from uh, complementing wind with solar. Mm-hmm. Okay, and we'll talk about that more in depth in just a moment, Gene uh, Talkley. Um, how is climate change impacting Iowa specifically? We talk to you uh, from time to time, um, and I just listed in the, at the start there the ways in which uh, the Midwest, the country, the world is experiencing extreme weather, uh, we think uh, very much uh, having to do with climate change. Give us your current assessment. Uh, sure. Uh, well, of course, climate change is local when it comes to uh, Living with it and 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 recovering from it. So it's been climate change has been very costly to the state of Iowa over the last uh, forty years or so. That uh, NOAA has been keeping track of this. They keep track of what they call billion-dollar climate disasters. And over the last forty-two years, Iowa has six has had sixty-four of these billion-dollar climate disasters, individual climate disasters. And uh, with most of these, uh, 50 of them, coming in the last 20 years. And these are principally due to uh, flooding, drought, and uh, extreme storms, such as the 2020 derecho. So it, it comes in a variety of forms. They're getting to be more, as most of us have been around for a while, have noticed that 
flooding is becoming more of an issue and heavy rainfall, particularly in the April, May, June period. And this has uh, caused uh, headaches for getting the crops in the ground and so on. But on the other hand, this year was a different kind of situation and it's been more drought. So there's been more, uh, it's, under, it's underscored the fact that there are more extremes in both directions in some of these climate events that we've been experiencing. But at any rate, the the billion-dollar disasters keep on coming, many times a, a new and surprising manifestation each year. Mm-hmm. How do we know these billion-dollar disasters uh, are tied with uh, humans' action that has, um, you know, produced a great deal of greenhouse gas and, and uh, is changing our climate? That's a good question, and it's it's uh, it's always easy to just jump on the bandwagon and claim climate change is responsible for all this. But it's actually a very uh, specific science of attribution. That is, what can we attribute this particular event to? And for instance, the derecho. Uh, this was a really a, a abnormality. But on the other hand, we get other kinds of abnormalities too. So there are people who look into this, scientific groups that look into it, and what's the probability that this could have happened under the 20th century climate? And we're finding that uh, there are more and more of these events that happen that are really outliers. It just it, it, there was the extra energy or the extra water vapor transported or something about it that made it stand out from the climate of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And Gene, unless we take action, what is the course? I mean, we already have made some progress here, right? Yes, and uh, I was in a position to to play a a role both in hardening our uh, landscapes and our society and so on to increased uh, weather uh, extremes, but also um, we have a chance to mitigate, that is to suppress future uh, climate change because we have, we're very rich in resources, as we've shown with the rise in wind energy and the uh, fact that historically we've had agricultural products that can, in the case of biofuels and so on, have been able to provide us with some transition type of solutions for uh, reducing our dependence on fossil fuels. And uh, so this year's statement then focused on solar energy as uh, what what the possibilities are there. So I think it was a timely topic for our group to uh, to, to look at that so that we could look at what role Iowa can play in, in the uh, uh, mitigation of future climate change. Mm-hmm. David and Gene will hear from uh, Peter Thorne in just a moment. He couldn't join us live. A recorded conversation coming up with him that I had yesterday, really focusing on the many aspects of solar. I'll ask you to join in uh, after that as well to emphasize any of the points that he's making or make additional ones. But uh, we have about a minute before we go to break, uh, David. Um, how much uh, of Iowa's solar energy resources are untapped? Can you Put a dollar figure on that, for instance. Ha, that's a that's a great question. Um, I can't put a dollar figure on it off the top of my head. Essentially, um, if you look at the uh, amount, like the amount of land that um, uh, you know it would take to 
essentially run all of Iowa's electricity or produce all of Iowa's electricity from from solar, you know, that could fit into, um, you know, part of a county. Right. So so the total really? potential resources of Iowa, as far as um, as far as solar is concerned, are, are extremely large. Um, obviously, we're not going to tap all of that. Um but uh, but we could we could make a huge amount of progress on a very small amount of land. Okay, uh, stay put, please, uh, David and Jean. David Gurard Howry, professor of environmental science and sustainability at Drake University, joining us this hour, uh, as well as Jean Talkley of Iowa State University, distinguished emeritus professor of agronomy. Join us with your questions or comments about solar power. That's a focus of this um, climate change hour, especially if you've recently installed a solar system in your home or are thinking about it. Join us, 1-866-780-9100, or email river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Back in a moment. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion including Above and Beyond Cancer. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Well, we are all experiencing the effects of a changing climate. We just have to think back to this summer's record high temperatures and uh, that very bad air, uh, the dangerous air quality from the wildfires this past summer. This hour, we're talking about the latest annual climate statement for Iowa. It's the 13th. More than 200 scientists from Iowa colleges and universities have signed the 2023 Iowa Climate Statement. So today on the program, we're talking with several scientists involved with putting together this latest assessment. And you can join us with your questions uh, about the changing climate in Iowa, the Midwest, and the challenges of mitigating the worst consequences of these uh, greenhouse gases. one 866 780 one 780 9100 Email us, if you prefer, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Peter Thorne is a University of Iowa Distinguished Chair and Professor in the University of Iowa College of Public Health, also co-director of the Environmental Health Sciences Research Center. He couldn't join us live for today's program. However, I had a chance to talk with him yesterday in our studio. Peter Thorne, welcome. Hello, Ben. Well, let's start off with why this year's statement is focused on Iowa's potential to tap solar energy resources. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, we're, we really are doing very well in the state of Iowa with about 58% of our uh, electricity coming from wind. But that's pretty much tapping out, and we're missing a huge opportunity to couple that with solar energy, which has come down in price tenfold since 2009 or 2010. And it really is the cheapest source of new installed electricity generation there is. They couple very well together. So putting solar and wind and battery storage together is really the key to the future sustainable energy system. When you say it's untapped, uh, what does that mean? To what degree can we still tap more solar energy? And what would that look like on our landscape? Yes. um, Iowa for wind is about 
number one in the country in terms of the proportion of our energy we generate, whereas we're only about 1% energy coming from solar. We could greatly increase that. We have the land area to do so, and, and the, as I said, the price is so low that that's the best way to do it. And it really doesn't take much land mass to produce a, a lot of solar energy. So building new Utility-scale solar, while at the same time we start to put solar on buildings and, and covering uh, parking lots, that's a win-win for everyone. The economics are good, the timing is right, and the price is low. Mm-hmm. Talk more about the economics uh, from different perspectives. You said the cost of this is lowered, but it could also be an economic boost for Iowa. What do you mean? Right. So when we, when we build a solar farm, that that employs people to do the land preparation, to uh, install the solar panels and the, um, the, the stands on which they sit, electricians to come in. And so if those are all local jobs, that produces a boon to the economy. The other thing it does is it, it really uh, provides electricity that's reliable and less expensive than even um, already existing and fully depreciated uh, coal or, or oil and gas um, installations. And now with the um, Infrastructure Act and the, um, the Inflation Reduction Act that have come through, there's a lot of financial incentives to build more solar and renewables, and this takes the price to almost zero. Mm-hmm. Given the, the, the current technology and the cost of the current technology, when you make that investment, how long does it take to, to recoup the costs and then be really in the black? Yeah. So so there's different ways to, to do the pricing on it. Um, when when, when let, Let's separate homeowners from u- utility scale. With utility scale, um, they can start, they can have a production incentive credit or they can take an, a, a, just a single investment credit up front. Um, either way is favorable, but that production credit, they can be uh, recouping, um, it's about 2.6 cents per, per uh, megawatt hour over, t- or kilowatt hour, sorry, over time. And so it really makes it very affordable. In terms of homeowners or com- commercial installations, uh, 30% to 50% of the cost of that can be um, returned from the incentives provided through those two pieces of legislation that were passed uh, in the last two years. Mm-hmm. What are the biggest obstacles you see to pursuing this path vigorously and uh, that vast amount of untapped solar energy resource? Yeah, I think that um, there there are some community concerns that have to be addressed. We want to make sure that when these these permitting and siting um, decisions are made at the local level, that there's input from the community. Um, There have been a a few times when these projects went forward and they used labor that was brought from out of state, and perhaps the wages were not um, favorable. So we're seeing that with uh, community engagement, the new um, projects that are being approved are using local labor that are being, being mm-hmm. for paid fair wages and, and jobs and benefits. And that benefits the community as a whole and the people who are going to be um, supporting those uh, installations will see the benefit to their community as a whole. So I think that's really a key part of it that the community is engaged. Let's talk about this term that not a lot of us are acquainted with, agrivoltaics, uh, land used not only for energy production, not only for agriculture, but being used for both of those at the same time. Uh, How does that work? Because 
to me, I see a field of uh, solar panels. And then how do you grow things in that field at the same time? Yeah. So we're used to this with wind. We see a wind turbine in the middle of a cornfield or a soybean field. And that's a common thing to see in Iowa. And some solar installations have been put down where they, they basically put gravel and, and covered up the, the soil to put those solar panels. And that's not the way we want to do it. What we want to do is, is take land that um, maybe may not be the best for agricultural production and, and build prairies there or build um, pasture land underneath the solar panels. And indeed, many plants do better when they are um, protected from that midday peak sun and heat. So it's like almost like a forest canopy where some plants thrive in that. It's not quite as dense as a forest canopy. Actually, they get more light than that because there's a lot of reflected light mm. and others. But but that's you're on you're on the right track there in saying that. And and then, you know, depending on what you're growing there, you can also graze uh, livestock in there. I'm I'm told it shouldn't be goats because goats like to hop up on the solar panels. <laughs> uh, but sheep or other livestock Goats could like graze to do there. a lot of things that you <laughs> you wouldn't think. Yeah. Now, we have some research going on at ISU, I believe this has been been financed by the U.S. Department of uh, of Energy, a big ten acre agrovoltaics a research solar farm there too. Um, the reason I raise that is how much of this uh, technology needs to be innovated. How much of it exists right now for uh, agrovoltaics? Well, the technology exists. Um, it's it's pretty well recognized that this is a, a good way to go. I think what what the current research is trying to establish is, is like how much can you improve the soil. You can take marginal soil and you can actually improve it and sequester more carbon in the soil um, through proper management. So this this kind of a demonstration project can, can show us that this can help the environment and mitigate greenhouse gases in many different ways, not just generating the electricity, but also um, sequestering carbon in the soil. So it's a form of carbon farming. Some listening might be saying, well, hey, we've got our renewable resource in our landscape, uh, corn uh, producing ethanol here. Um, this would just displace corn producing ethanol. Uh, what are the considerations there? Well, first of all, the, the amount of land it requires is minuscule compared to corn-based ethanol. I mean, we, when, you, when you look around the state, you see all that corn that's being used for ethanol production. It, it's a, about 100 acres of corn-based ethanol will generate the same amount of uh, energy as one acre of, that's in photovoltaic uh, solar. So, mm. so it's, it's much more favorable in terms of land use on the solar side. The other thing is, is that um, when you create, when you generate um, ethanol, produce ethanol from corn starch, uh, corn kernels, um, that requires a lot of inputs of fossil fuels, the fuel to run the, the, the farm machinery over that, the pesticides, the, the fertilizer. That the all, water, water. Uh, yeah. But the, the things I mentioned all come from, from um, uh, petroleum products. I see. Uh, yeah. So that's where I was going with that. And so, so you know, that has its inefficiencies. And, you know, to a large extent, we can do a, a really great job with solar. Um, and as I say, when it's paired with wind and battery storage, it's really a really good way to generate electricity for the state. To finish this up, Peter, um, you mentioned this a little bit, I referenced it earlier, but what uh, objections to dramatically increasing solar power in the way that you've described in the state have, have you encountered or do you anticipate? I think that there are 
some people in the state who um, think of Iowa's corn and soybeans fields as a natural landscape. I've heard this said, and to me, you know, prairie is the natural landscape. But if you've grown up around corn and soybean fields, that's what you're used to. And yeah, so, when sure. with the introduction of of wind turbines and um, solar panels to some of the landscape, that that is a change. And some people, I think, um, will have to accommodate to that. I I always compare it to a a smokestack from a coal-fired power plant as the alternative. And I think about the health benefits of renewable fuels, uh, especially wind and solar, um, compared to, say, coal or fossil fuel electricity-generating plants. So that, to me, is the comparison. But that is a, a concern people have. And so I think citing these, citing uh, solar farms in a place where um, it, the view shed is not too adversely impacted. And again, if we can if we introduce the agrivoltaics, that certainly makes it aesthetically quite a bit more pleasing to people, I think. Well, thanks for coming in today, Peter Thorne, environmental health scientist uh, at the University of Iowa. We appreciate it. Okay, thanks. Always happy to be with you. That conversation recorded yesterday with Peter Thorne, back live now uh, to discussing this year's Iowa climate statement. Uh, Peter, one of the leaders of a group of scientists that put together this year's statement, uh, joining us live now. Uh, David Courard Howry, Professor of Environmental Science and Sustainability at Drake. Gene Talkley of Iowa State University. And uh, let me just start. We have some emails. Uh, listeners want to get into our conversation. one 780 or email river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Before we go to that, David, let me uh, uh, have you react to what Peter said. Perhaps there are aspects of the solar discussion that you'd like to emphasize or or add to what Peter said. Sorry. Yeah, um, there are a couple. Uh, one is, you know, Peter mentioned the, the health benefits. Um, there are, if you look at studies of, uh, you know, health impacts of fossil fuel production, um, it looks like around 100,000 premature deaths happen in the United States uh, every year um, due to uh, pollution from fossil fuel use. Uh, and that's, a, that's, a, that's by far the, the um, most significant environmental uh, or anthropogenic environmental killer, essentially, is, is air pollution. And it's something that we've just grown to live with, um, although maybe not at the levels that we've seen with the fires this year. Uh, but, but that's, that's um, in some sense, at this point, voluntary uh, because we can, as he mentioned, transition away from coal um, in, in particular, but but all the the, um, uh, the the polluting technology. So I think that's a that's a, a aspect that that people may not think much about is what are the the health costs, mm -hmm. uh, regardless of climate change, of our current system of producing energy. Gene, I want to have you go in a little bit more depth to what Peter mentioned and, and you mentioned earlier, how solar and wind energy, both renewable energies, how does that work? We know the wind doesn't always blow, uh, the sun doesn't always shine. <laughs> uh, how do s potentially solar and wind systems work together w with batteries, right? Yes, there, uh, there's a, and Iowa is, is a good place to demonstrate that, and we already are, of course, uh, because uh, our sun shines during the day, but uh, maybe people aren't aware of this, but the wind is actually maximum at night, and so in many seasons. And so 
it's uh, it's what we call they're complementary. That uh, uh, we can we use one and switch to another uh, during the during the diurnal cycle. Also during the uh, seasonal cycle, of course, uh, solar's maximum in the in the summer, and our wind is generally a little bit lower in the summer on average. Higher in the spring and and winter when uh, when uh, solar is is low. So this complementarity is something that we can demonstrate, and it gives us an advantage over other high wind states, over and over other high solar states. That we have this complementarity. We don't have to bring in uh, uh, natural gas plants or whatever to to compensate nearly as much as other states might have to do. Mm-hmm. Let's go to our callers. We have plenty of interest uh, on our email, river to river at iowapublicradio.org, uh, 1-866-780-9100. Let's go to our first caller today, Denise uh, in uh, Cass County. Welcome, uh, Denise. Um, what uh, perks up your ears about this conversation today? Oh, what perks my ears is um, I'm wondering, there's a big resistance in my part of the state in southwest Iowa uh, on zoning boards, and people are uh, kicking in re- uh, resisting pipelines and wind, and many of them feel like the solar, solar farms are taking up too much um, land as well. And so I'm wondering if anyone is working with the zoning boards, educating them on the, the, you know, on the benefits of all this. And my husband and I um, have solar on our farm. We, we put it in two years ago. So I think we're going to our third year and are really pleased with the results of what we have and are very much advocates for solar. We grow too much corn in Iowa. So taking land out of production to me wouldn't be a big thing. And putting prairie in would be really great. Denise, thank you for contributing uh, with your solar system, you and your husband there in Cass County. We have just over a minute before we go to break. Uh, David, uh, you know, you deal with policy here as well as the environment in your work. What do you have to say to Denise's concerns there? Yeah, I I think that you definitely see um, some pushback in some places. Some of it is uh, fear of, you know, uh, more industrial looking landscape that some people feel when they when they pass large uh, solar solar fields. And also some of it is just a result of our increasing, increasingly polarized uh, politics. And so, you know, if if some so so there's there's a mix of those kind of things. Um, I think that if the the, the wind might have met much more difficult political climate if it um, had risen today than it did. Um, and we would have lost out a lot um, uh, if, if that had happened, you know, 10 years ago. So, so I think there's a lot of things going on. I'm thrilled to hear that uh, she's, she's excited about the, the solar on her farm because I think word of mouth is probably the best way to, to address um, uh, concerns like that. But one of the things, and I know we're running low on time, one of the things that, 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 does challenge solar is uh, a diversity of local regulations. And so every solar installation has to be kind of a bespoke um, uh, installation, driving soft costs up rather than sort of the cost of just the, the, the utilities or the, the, the installation. Soft costs are about okay, we have half. To, yep. We have to take a uh, break. David, I'll have to cut you off there. David and Gina will be back. It's River to River from IPR News. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. 
Back with more River to River from IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer talking about the 2023 Iowa Climate Statement this hour uh, with several leading scientists who uh, put it together uh, this hour. Uh, Gene Tockley of Iowa State University, David Courard, Howry of Drake University. And in just a moment, we'll talk with Ulrika Passa of ISU about uh, buildings and sustainability. But David and, and uh, Gene, before we do, we have plenty of listeners with questions. Let's just go rapid fire and uh, satisfy some of our listeners' curiosity. Uh, Renita is with us in Cedar Rapids. Hi, Renita. Welcome to the program. Hi, how are you? Fine. What um, do you have for us? Uh, my well, my question is, I'm I'm retired now and on a budget, but I would love to get solar. How much, what's the best way to go about doing that on a budget, and how much will it save me? All right. It's a good chance to talk about those incentives. Gary in Davenport asks uh, to, to couple it with uh, Renita's uh, question, how important are tax credits to making or breaking a solar uh, project. Uh, David or Gene, who, who wants to tackle that? As far as the how, how important are federal tax incentives, that depends a lot on the individual project. And I would also talk t- tell Renita that probably the best thing to do is to talk to a solar installer because they can they can help with the details. It's going to depend, again, a lot on things like, you know, which direction your roof faces. Um, but one thing I would say for people on a budget, one, one thing that, that, that we do in um, with solar is you can compare the levelized cost, which essentially is if you take out a loan, right, to build your system rather than have to then pay the, the, the money up front, take out a loan to build your system. How does your monthly um, loan repayment uh, compare to your monthly energy bill? And if that monthly loan repayment is less, then, then, then you win right from the start, right? And, and that happens, um, especially with federal incentives, but even without them, that, that, that happens more and more when you investigate an individual project. Mm-hmm. Thank you, uh, Renita. Right. Let's go to Mike in Iowa City. Mike, uh, I can see on my screen you're involved in uh, solar power uh, here in Iowa. How so? Welcome. Hello? Yes, yeah. Mike, Hi, you're Dean. on the air. Go Hi, ahead, uh, sir. Hi, David. Yes. Yeah, uh, I've been working in renewable energy uh, for 25 years. Uh, you know me, Mike Carberry, former county supervisor. I'm working currently in 25 different counties where trying to cite wind and solar projects with the county boards of supervisors where, as somebody mentioned earlier, that's where we cite these projects. I have always been a big fan of your uh, science letter on climate. I think that if you haven't sent those to our county supervisors, our planning and zoning commissions, and our board of adjustments, that those would be a good target. Um, we focus on economic development and property rights. 85 counties are losing population, yet they have the same roads, bridges, and jails and courthouses to pay for on a declining tax base. Uh, the jobs, the tax replacement that these bring, is just amazing. And uh, somebody had mentioned the efficiency uh, uh, regarding uh, an acre of uh, solar produces more energy than over 100 acres of corn turned into both ethanol and uh, dry distillers grains. So keep up the great work and go solar. Thank you. Uh, Mike in Iowa City, Mike Carberry, thank you very much. Uh, Let's address some of the what may be termed gripes about solar. Roger writing us, 
Uh, he says, I, I hear little conversation about how much it takes to dig the elements from the earth to build solar panels or wind generators. You don't hear much about the energy need to, needed to haul those raw materials to factories, how much it costs to transport the parts, the pieces to the resting places, how much it costs to install, how much maintenance is. Uh, so, so Roger, it sounds like he's full of uh, doubts. Uh, David, uh, help him out there. Yeah, well, the way that you analyze that is with what's called a life cycle assessment, where you uh, look at the total impact of your system, not just as it's running, but um, but you know as you're doing all the things that that, that he mentions. Um, and without getting into details of life life cycle assessments, uh, alternative energies, uh, you know, electric cars, those people often have some of those concerns about those, especially when you see pictures of you know like uh, disposal of of you know, wind turbines and stuff, because they're large on an individual um, scale. But at the same time, if you think about things like the the immense amount of toxic fly uh, coal ash that gets produced when we when we burn coal um, and the amount of, of uh, you know, mining that goes in there, it turns out that on a life cycle uh, basis that that renewables do uh, uh, win certainly over over fossil fuels, essentially across the board. Mm-hmm. Let's go to Catherine in Northeast Iowa. Catherine, I think you had a related question. Go ahead. Welcome. Um, I have a couple of comments and a question. So I am a zoning administrator for a county up here. Um, what I understand from people in my county, what they're afraid of is the 400-acre solar farm. That's what they don't want to see um, affecting their landscape. Um, and then I've had several questions about, well, what's the disposal end of this? What happened? Because they don't want it to end up like the wind turbines. Um, secondly, is we also farm on the side. Uh, we have a dairy farm, and we did put in solar, and it brought our bill down from probably three thousand dollars a month to twelve to fifteen hundred. Um, hmm. So that has been for for a pocketbook a fabulous benefit. But like I said, from a zoning perspective, I think what I see is they don't want to see the big ones. And what's the disposal end of that? Because we're all in a hurry to do these pipelines, wind turbines, and we have wind turbines, Um, but what's the disposal end of that? Those are the complaints that I hear from, or the concerns, I guess, that I hear from people. Catherine, thank you for raising those concerns, Uh, David or uh, Jean. uh, uh, David, you want to tackle that? The the mega solar farms that seem to be a concern to some. Yeah, obviously, you know, one one of the things we mentioned in the, in the, um, uh, statement is that, you know, you need to, to have these conversations locally uh, because what may work some in one place may not work in another. Again, as I was mentioning, uh, you know, the, the, the more we can standardize uh, rules, the easier it is to, to, to build these things. But local communities have to have to figure out what what works there. And if, um, you know, large uh, scale solar doesn't make sense in a community, then that then that may be the way it goes. Um, obviously, there are significant economies of scale um, to to building solar. So the the larger that you can do in a way that that works with the community, often the the less expensive that's going to be. But um, uh, that that all depends on on again mm-hmm. uh, specifics. Uh, as far as disposal, um, absolutely, you know, there's there's disposal, but at the same time, remember that that you're talking about a 20 year installation. And if you think about the actual mass in, a, in an individual, individual solar um, array, and you compare that against, um, again, you know, a plant that, that that's producing uh, electricity via fossil fuels or 
all the other things that we uh, dispose of of similar scales. Um, again, uh, renewable energy, the the disposal costs there because they're uh, highly efficient, really are, are relatively low. Final ten minutes uh, talking about this year's Iowa climate statement with its focus on solar energy, how solar energy would not only be good for mitigating the effects of climate change, but also really good business uh, to place more emphasis on that. That's the the message out of uh, this year's group of scientists. Uh, Over 200 signed on to it this hour, uh, talking to uh, four of the scientists who uh, in this group um, uh, leading, organizing the creation of this climate uh, Iowa Climate Statement. Uh, we haven't talked yet with Ulrika Passa. Uh, Ulrika is a professor of architecture, uh, director of the Center for Building Energy Research at Iowa State University. Uh, Ulrika, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much. It's nice to be here. Thanks for the invitation. You're bringing, you're bringing a wrinkle into our conversation we haven't had yet, buildings and sustainability. What are your main concerns and messages here? Well, I, the, the concerns I have that we, are, we, we have the technologies and we have the knowledge to build and to retrofit buildings for solar adoption and that we might not do it fast enough. That is a concern. I think my, my hope is that we will bring the building energy efficiency you know, forward in the next couple of years and that people will adopt more solar as those colleagues and, and residents of Iowa who were on the telephones earlier already have done. And I think these experiences will help bring solar into um, our communities more than right now, because I know there are folks who already have solar on their homes and they are happy with the outcome and the reduction of their utility bills. So I'm quite hopeful in the next years. We've built a house with students 12 years ago, which was powered, still is powered by solar. Arrays, so this is the this is the Honey Creek Resort House, correct? Yes, it's we called it the Interlock House. It was built for a U.S. Department of Energy uh, competition. So let, uh, student teams from all across the country built homes which were powered by the sun. We were all on the mall in Washington at the time in 2009, and brought you know showcased the potential for design for architectural design to design buildings which are fully powered by the sun across the year. Yeah, what are the takeaways from building that home, uh, that that project, uh, uh, as a as a, an, an idea of what we may be facing in the future in terms of changes in designs in our home, uh, so that we can better take a uh, take advantage of the sun's power? What are some uh, big ticket items there that we should keep in mind? Well, one is as already was mentioned, orientation. And I think, you know, given that we are living in a, in a cardinal grid, that is not so difficult because we have uh, our lots are usually have one side which is oriented to the south. And that is the most advantageous orientation for solar. It is thinking a little bit more about how we plant uh, trees with solar on our um, properties, large or small. And it's, you know, because trees are useful to reduce air temperature, but um, PV arrays also provide electricity. So, you know, the placement is important and the design can be important, but it doesn't have to look to change the look of the building because, you know, you, you, we need a little bit more passive strategies um, and efficient uh, wall and window assemblies. And then you can go solar, as the pre- mm-hmm. some previous um, listener said. 
Yeah. Uh, Ulrika, Mike in Waterloo has a question, I think, that's uh, something in your field of expertise. Uh, Mike asks, how can I determine whether solar is economically uh, feasible besides environmentally, whether it's viable for my 1,100 square foot residence? Uh, 1100 square foot residence. Oh yeah. So, so you would take, and actually I have, a, I had a, a, a graduate student who in her master's thesis designed a GIS based tool, map based tool to give homeowners the opportunity to assess their own location. It's not yet publicly available, but there are similar tools. You can, you know, you measure the, the energy per square foot of your, uh, you can, you can assess the, the per square foot energy falling on your roof and that can be converted with a, with a very simple con, um, calculation into the kilowatt hours you can bring into your building. Mm-hmm. Um, we're winding up our conversation. These lithium batteries, perhaps we can go back to you, Jean, for that. Uh, talk about the battery technology since you are into the systems here. What's the state of that technology? And we always hear about lithium, critical for making these high-performance batteries. Do we have enough of that in the U.S.? Uh, is that found everywhere on the planet? Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, no, it isn't. But uh, and and I'm I'm not an expert in in uh, specifically where this is mine. But I know there have been some real advances in in battery technology and ability to store larger amounts. And there are other factors to consider that, for instance, long-term storage versus very short-term storage. And so there may be other opportunities to to, uh, to just be able to store large amounts of energy for a few hours uh, to get through the diurnal cycle, the day-night cycle, uh, rather than store it in the summer and use it in the winter. So I think we just have to be smarter about our use of energy and at the same time that, that we are uh, improving our battery technology, we should be looking at ways that we can use the renewable energy to be complementary and to be uh, plug the gaps where where we have excess and can, can uh, uh, develop other renewables to fill in the gaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, David, in our final couple of minutes, you are, of course, uh, expertise in environmental science and sustainability, but also policy here. Uh, address some of the misinformation. We've heard some pushback this hour. Uh, is there misinformation out there um, that uh, farmers, that others here in Iowa uh, need to really check out that you've encountered? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, the as we, we've talked about, one of the things is, you know, the, the efficiency on a per acre basis. Um, and I think people don't understand uh, quite how efficient solar really is uh, when you compare it against other things that we're growing for for um, ener- for electricity or for energy, I should say. Um, so so that's one. And then the other is is the the fear that, um, you know, we're we're running low on, as you were mentioning, lithium. Um, and there's no question that you know we we face limited resources in terms of 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 that. But I think I feel like one of the main uh, kind of uh, lessons of the environmental movement in the 80s or 1980s was uh, sort of that that the economy is actually really good at replacing fi- finding ways to 
replace um, uh, things that you may be running low on. So people were really worried about running out of resources, and that didn't turn out to be the environmental challenge. The environmental challenge was, uh, you know, this this stuff all building up in the in the atmosphere, for example, and, and I mean other environmental challenges as well. So I guess my point is, um, I think that 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 I would encourage people to um, you know focus on on what we have and what we can do um, now and uh, imagine that that I think we probably will be able to solve those problems as, as they come up, as we, we sort of always have. Mm-hmm. David, in the final 30 seconds, uh, give us some places to go for those who want to um, answer questions they may have or find out more about how solar energy may become a part of their lives. Quickly, please. Yeah, I think uh, your local uh, solar installer is probably the best person they can. You know, so, so, so look, look up, um, you know, solar energy uh, and, and um, you can you can find a lot of information just just by talking with with those individuals. Okay, David Gourard Howry, Professor of Environmental Science and Sustainability at Drake University. Gene Tockley, Distinguished Emeritus Professor of Agronomy at ISU. Ulrika Passa, Professor of Architecture and Director of the Center for Building Energy Research at ISU. Ulrika, Gene, and David, thank you very much for taking part today and uh, delivering these very important messages. Thank you. Thank you for having us back. Today's program produced by Samantha McIntosh with help from Caitlin Troutman. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.